we are learning today in memory of, and this is um, something that we're all aware of because it's uh, something that something that happened um, to even Abe and Eva, uh, the loss of their granddaughter Batya. Um, and it was Batya Gitel Bat um, Moshe Aaron and Malka, correct? And um, she was my Talmida. And um, I think we all remember because we were together in Shear here um, just after she had passed. And so the Shear is in her memory. And it's appropriate because the Shear is about today's uh, fast, uh, which um, has always held a fascination for me because I grew up with that same adage that I'm sure everybody here heard, which is, what would Gedalia fast for me? And the other one, which is, who was Gedalia anyways? Som Gedalia. And Gedalia is a uh, relatively unknown character. It's relatively in sort of the broader scope of Jewish knowledge. Uh, he's not, certainly not unknown in Tanakh. But I want to talk about Som Gedalia to try to understand why it's so important. To be honest with you, I think Som Gedalia might be the hardest fast of the year. And the reason I say that is because, A, <laughs> it's today. Uh, which always feels hardest, but because it comes right after two days of celebration. So it's kind of hard to go from that to fasting. The second thing is psychologically, when you're on a fast like Tisha B'Av or Yom Kippur, however hard it may be, you, you know, you're envisioning, and we can't avoid this, so you're envisioning uh, 8.05, 8.10, whatever time you're going to make Abdallah, and afterwards you're done. When it was Tisha B'Av, then you got the rest of the summer, and in a normal year that's vacation, that's whatever it is. Yom Kippur, there's not another fast day coming along for another four months, three months, and it's the shortest fast day of the year. And Asar Batevat. So, but Som Gedalia, you fast, it's difficult, it's coming right off of, of Rosh Hashanah, and a week later you got Yom Kippur. So there's no sense of relief, shall we say, at the end. I don't mean to take away from your breakfast tonight, but there's no big sense of relief. But the bigger problem with Som Gedalia is that Som Gedalia really is to sort of paraphrase that old thing, like, would Gedalia fast for you? It's like, what's the big deal? Why is this such a critical thing? And in order to understand that, we're going to take a circuitous route. And as I promised you last week, uh, this week is going to be a crossover. So half this year is going to be today. The other half is going to be on Wednesday. I'm going to send everybody a link if you want to join us Wednesday. They'll both be on podcast, so if you miss part of today, if you can't come Wednesday, you can hear the whole thing. Uh, and the, the, it's one source sheet for the whole piece. Uh, but uh, Tzom Gedalia is way bigger than we think. And it's way bigger than we think, and therefore it's critical for us to understand it. And also hopefully for the rest of the couple hours that we have here in LA uh, to, uh, to hopefully make that, that time more meaningful. All right, I'm going to go straight to the source material that was sent out. And I'm going to start, and a good part of what we do today is going to be, is going to be questions. I'm going to start with two passages that have nothing to do with Gedalia, and, uh, and they have everything to do with fasting. The first passage, as you could see, is a chapter 58, the whole chapter, 58 of Yeshayahu. Chapter 58 of Yeshayahu is, by the way, uh, along with the few, last few verses of 57, is the Haftarah next Monday morning. It's the Haftarah of Yom Kippur, in the morning. And it's really about fast days and about the meaning of fast days. And it's a tremendously powerful parrot. And uh, I've always gotten a lot of meaning out of it. 
Um, and I'll read a couple of lines from it to kind of highlight what it's about. But then when you step back from it, you realize that there was something very bizarre about the parak itself, right? Um, starting from Pasuk Gimel, where the highlight starts. The people are complaining that they have fasted and God is not watching, which means they're fasting for something and God's not responding. We afflict ourselves and it's as if you don't know. And now the prophet's response is, what are you talking about? On your fast day, you're still doing business and you're, and you're still running after your debtors and hurting them. He says, you're fasting while you're still in the middle of disputes with people. You're hitting with a fist, which is a fist of evil, whether it means hitting yourself in, in, in confession or whether it means you're actually hitting people, but with a wicked fist. Don't fast on a day like this. That your voice should be heard up on high. Okay, very good. So what are we supposed to do? And Yeshayahu responds. You think this is the kind of day of fasting I want, says God? Just to afflict yourself? To bend your head over like a reed? Put up on, on, on the sackcloth and ashes, put them on. You think this is a fast and a day that God wants? Now, of course, that's setting up the punchline. and saying what God wants is not all of the external stuff of bowing your head and wearing the sackcloth, etc. And then he says, This is the fast that I want. Loosen the fetters of wickedness. Hater agudot motab, loosen the bonds of the one who is who is under who is underneath them. Mishalach retzutzim chovshim chomotatenateku, essentially to loosen people from their debts and relieve them of their debts. And here's the key line that we're all familiar with: Halo faros laraev lachmecha, slice some bread for the hungry. Vaniim rodim tavibayit, bring poor people into your house. You see somebody who's not clothed, clothe them. And don't ignore your own flesh. In other words, don't, one way of reading it would mean don't go to such an extent to help everybody else that you make your own family penniless. Now, notice that this is um, a, a dispute which the Navi is having with the people, but the Navi is saying all the words. Saying, this is what you're saying, this is what I'm saying, this is what God's saying. You're saying we're fasting and God's not answering. I'm saying you think this is the kind of fast God wants. And then God speaks and says, here's the kind of fast I want. Essentially a fast in which you affect social justice. You take care of the poor and the, and the indigent. You take care of the hungry and the, and the homeless. You take care of those people. That's the kind of fast that I want, which is odd because when you're doing that, you're not necessarily fasting. So what it seems to mean is that you should be fasting and either on that day be involved in those activities, or you should have already been involved in those activities, then you can come to God and say, God, please answer us. Okay, now when that happens, take a look. Pasuk tet, az then you'll call out and God will answer. It's beautiful. And God is going to answer you. I want to show you the last two psukim here, which you probably all know. The last two psukim, which are the reward for that kind of fast. 
אמר, אם תשיב משבת רגלך, עשות חפציך ביום קודשי. Now, we, we already saw these psukim in an earlier shir in Masachat Shabbat as being about Shabbat and speaking on Shabbat about certain things, Dibur B'Shabbat, and, the, and this, these psukim are taken in but out of context as being about Shabbat itself. On Shabbat, you don't go after your own needs, you, uh, you don't look after your own business, but Karata La Shabbat Oneg, rather you declare it to be a day of delight, the holy day of God is for honor. And you honor it rather than doing your own business or even talking about it. And then we get all the prohibitions of, of talking about things that you're not allowed to do on Shabbat and planning for business things and even going to, in, to check out your, how your business is doing on Shabbat. All of those prohibitions are kicked in there. And the, and the reward is that if you do that, if you desist on Shabbat from those things, you will then take delight with God, and he will have you ride on the high places of the land. Now, we didn't look at this last time, but look at this reward. He will have you ride on the high places of the land, which is consistently used in Tanakh as a metaphor for victory, for military victory. I will feed you the inheritance of Yaakov, your father, and that's the end of the prophecy. God has spoken. Now, out of context, it's about Shabbat. Now, it, in context, it's about Shabbat also. However, it's something about something broader. Because as we find throughout the Nevi'im, the storekeepers and the people who were, who were accumulating debts from others and then coming to exact them with interest, and with taking their children as slaves and all sorts of other things, would always sit there on Shabbat and say, I can't wait for Shabbat to be over so we can go and gouge more poor. And so Shabbat becomes sort of connected to this whole fast day phenomenon of saying, I'm going to observe, observe the ritual law, but treat people like dirt and exploit them. And so this becomes part of that picture. But notice that the reward for this is a strange reward. You would think the reward will be if you don't do your work on Shabbat, you desist from worrying about it. I'm going to give you a bracha so that you'll have seven days worth of, of, of profit and six days of work or something like that, which Chazal may have expressions like that. But here it's about political sovereignty and rule, which is a strange thing. The, but the larger question I want to ask about this passage, which is, again, is very popular and again, it's the Haftarah and Yom Kippur morning, so it, it, in normal years, it is the subject of many drashot. This year, there aren't many drashot. What, who, who are these people? Why are they fasting? What's the fast? Is this fast Yom Kippur? It doesn't seem to be. Because the people are fasting for some sort of need that they see is not being answered. So they're not like they're fasting and saying, God, please forgive us. And they're turning around and saying, you haven't forgiven us because how would they know that? It sounds like there's some tangible need, tangible desire that's out there that they're fasting because they don't have it. And they're complaining that we're fasting and we're not getting what, what it is that we need. What fast is this? Now, I'll, I'll um, throw one little piece into here about Sefer Yeshayahu, which is critical to understand, but then we're going to leave this passage alone, and we're going to come back to it much later on. 
towards the end of the whole piece. Yeshayahu is the name of a prophet. Yeshayahu ben Amotz, who was a prophet in Jerusalem right at the, towards the end of the 8th century BCE. He was a prophet during the reign chiefly of Chizkiyahu, and the relationship between Yeshayahu and Chizkiyahu was likely the most uh, convivial and supportive and friendly and constant relationship between any Navi and a king. For the most part, as you know, prophets and kings didn't get along. Matter of fact, it was the prophet's job to not get along with the king and tell the king what he was doing wrong. And so Yeshayahu is, just to put it in a historic context, is, is uh, his, um, his prophecy is during a period of Assyrian conquest. Assyria, which in the eighth century had risen again, and by the middle of the eighth century was making moves towards Egypt again, and came and in 722 famously conquered Shomron and exiled the Northern Kingdom, and that was it for them. We talked about that a little bit um, last Wednesday in the year about Yumiyahu. Um, and, uh, and, um, and Assyria then made moves towards Judea, because of course, we're always in the way of fighting against Egypt. And they made moves towards Judea. And somewhere around 705 or something of that sort, they came to Judea and they conquered several cities. And there was a siege around the city of Lachish. And at that time, the king of Assyria, Sancheriv, sent a messenger to Jerusalem telling the people, if you remember from our Shabbat afternoon shir, we studied this together, sent a messenger, Rav Shakeh, to get up there and tell everybody, give up, uh, surrender, we'll take you to a much nicer land, and you're going to suffer here. And the people didn't do it, and the city was really under tremendous threat. And then there was a nace, and a malach came and slew 180,000 Syrian soldiers, and uh, the rest all fled. And then Sanchariv came back, and he was in his temple in, in, uh, in Ninveh, and he was assassinated by his own children. It was the, kind of the beginning of the end of Assyria. They lasted almost another 100 years until Babylonia uh, defeated them. But that was it as far as we were concerned. That's Yeshayahu. So when you read Yeshayahu, when you read Yeshayahu, Perak Yod, which says, Hoi Ashur Shevet Api, Assyria is the rod of my anger to punish my people. That's all during the Assyrian period. Okay. Flash forward to chapter 40 of Yeshayahu. I'm going to show you chapter 40 uh, because uh, you have to see it in order to understand what's going on in our text. Chapter 40 of Yeshayahu. Here it is. Um, and I will put it up here with the English. Okay. Chapter 40. Nachamu Nachamu Ami. The entire tone of the chapter changes. The entire tone of the speech changes. And the prophet is comforting his people and telling them that they are going to return and to straighten out the road and announce the big message that, take a look at source three, and verse three. Kol koreba, I mean, right, you could see it in English. Panu derech Adonai, ba'arava And take a look, famously, a pasuk tet. Al har Notice that this chapter is not speaking to people who are settled in their land and who are experiencing a threat from the outside. This is speaking to people who are not in their land 
and who are hoping and getting a message that they're going to return and that the great word of return has come. One of the most beautiful passages in this section is here in Perakunun Bet. Uh, many passages, including a lot of Lacharudi, was taken from this passage. But take a look at Pasuk Zion. It is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Tanakh, I think. Look how beautiful are the steps of the one bringing glad tidings on the mountains. What is he announcing? Mashmiya Shalom, Mevaser Tov, Mashmiya Yeshua, Omer Litzion, Malach Elohayich. Now, this is all quite murky to us because it doesn't seem to fit the period. But I'm going to go to one other passage uh, in this section, the section between chapter 40 and the end. And that is at the end of chapter 44. This is God. The Navi is talking about God who does everything and fulfills all of his promises. Take a look at, at verse 26. He says to Yerushalayim, you will be built, you will be settled. The cities of Judea will be built. I will raise up her destroyed cities. Now take a look at the last verse. He says about Koresh, he is my shepherd. Who's Koresh? Koresh is Cyrus. Cyrus is the Persian emperor who defeats the Babylonians in the year 539 BCE and then announces, it's a famous piece, it's the very end of Sefer Divrei Amin, the very beginning of Sefer Ezra, that Koresh announces all of the Jews who want to go back and rebuild their temple. Here's materials, here's money, here, I'm sending you off with support. Go, me, Adonai, Who has God with him and will go? And in the next chapter, something even more remarkable shows up. This is what God says to his anointed one, his Mashiach, which is Koresh. Now, very strange passage, but it's very hard to escape the conclusion that this section of Yumiyahu comes from a later time, and that it's authored by somebody who's living in Bavel, who is giving comfort to the people that they're going to yet return. Lest you think that I'm making this up, I'm not making it up, as you probably know, but I will show you um, here. Where are we? Okay, I'm going to have to show you because it doesn't work on a share. Um, and I will show you the Ibn Ezra, okay? Um, oops, sorry, let's go back. Okay, at the very beginning of chapter 40, the Ibn Ezra famously says here, um, Nachamu, Nachamu Ami, you can see it right here, highlighted. It connects to something earlier in, in Yeshayahu. And then he himself says that this prophecy, you could take a look at Ibn Ezra here, this prophecy, these prophecies were all re, re, um, stated uh, by a later prophet who was in Bavel at the time. And they were appended to Sefer Yeshayahu for different reasons. Now, this opinion was not the mainstream opinion. It has, in more recent years, become 
more widely accepted, that the second half of the book of Yeshayahu is really from later prophecies that were appended to the book of Yeshayahu for different reasons. And the truth is that there's absolutely nothing in our belief system or in our sources to deny this. And let me give you an example of that. The sugya in Masechet Bava Batra that goes through the authorship of the different books of Tanakh says, for instance, Yoshua wrote his book. I'm going to stay away from the issue of the Torah. That's a thorny issue. Yoshua wrote his book. The Gemara then challenges and says, what do you mean? The end of Sefer Yoshua says, Yoshua died and he was buried. Who wrote that? So I said, okay, Elazar wrote that. They said, okay, but the last verse says Elazar died. Who wrote that? He says, okay, Pinchas wrote that. Which means that from Chazal's perspective, the fact that a book is named something or that it is authored by someone doesn't mean that it's totally authored by him. And the greatest example of that, of course, is Sefer Shmuel. Sefer Shmuel, Chazal said, was written by Shmuel. Very nice. The problem is Shmuel dies in chapter 25 of Shmuel Aleph, which means Shmuel is not around to even see David crowned. Shmuel is certainly not around to see Shlomo born or the, inter, or the, uh, the interaction with Avner, any of that. Shmuel is already dead. So Chazal say, yeah, the rest of it is written by Natan and God. In other words, the book has an author, but there may be other authors who contribute and their works are included in the book. And much the, much the same can be said, and it's likely the most reasonable way to go in understanding Sefer Yishayahu. The, the small little twist in this is that Yishayahu chapter 40 through 55, which we're either, if you have Mincha already, you already heard it, or if not, I'm going to a later minion, uh, you, you, you will hear the, the Haftarah, makes no mention of a Beit HaMikdash. It makes mention of returning home in a beautiful, very pastoral image. Starting in chapter 56, suddenly you have the verse you all know, Vahaviyotim al har kodshi, v'simachtim b'veit filati, olotehem v'zivchehem l'ratzonom izbachi. It's all about the Beit HaMikdash. And from there to the end of Yeshayahu, is a different focus. It's a focus that's Mikdash-based, which is why the current scholarship, and I say current, the last 200 years, maintains, and there's, again, no reason for us to, to, have, to have any problem with this, is that the third part of Yeshayahu really was composed by a Navi in Yerushalayim at the beginning of the, third temple, of the second temple period. All right? It's, it's called Trito Isaiah, the third Isaiah. Lo chashu, what we call him, we don't know his name, but his works are appended in. I'm telling you that because that's going to play a great role in understanding what this fast is about. The passage we looked at that you're looking at right now was Yeshayahu Nunchet, Isaiah 58. It's in that section that comes from the period of Yerushalayim at the beginning of the Second Temple. And the people are fasting for something, and they're not getting an answer. And God's response to them is, you're not getting an answer because of the way that you are treating each other. The reason that, that is so significant is because it echoes something that we're going to see towards the end of the Shi'ur in the book of Zechariah. I want to, actually, we're going to, we're, yeah, we're going to, but first I want to take you to another puzzling passage. And this is without doubt, 100% straight in the text, beginning of the Second Temple period. So, beginning of the Second Temple period, let's recall what happened. 
a relatively small group of Jews returned under Cyrus's permission. They returned to Israel. They began building the Beit HaMikdash. Um, they were despondent because early on in the building, they had trouble with their neighbors. Some things don't change. That's our neighborhood. And they had to suspend the building uh, of the Mikdash for, um, for about 20 years until they're finally able to complete it under Daryavesh and they got permission. At a later point, after, right after the Purim story happened, there was an, a, a critical Kohen. We got three Kohanim here today. A critical Kohen appeared in, came from Bavel. His name was Ezra, Ezra Kohen Sofer Mahir. And he came to Jerusalem and he started instituting religious reforms to try to strengthen the religious identity of the community. A little while later, there was a fellow who was a cupbearer for the Persian emperor Artaxerxes, Artaxasta. And uh, Artaxasta gave him permission to come for a short period to Jerusalem and help strengthen the walls of the city and the defenses of the city because um, he, had, he liked this Jewish cupbearer and he saw that he was very despondent about what was happening in Jerusalem, and so he let him go. And that's Nehemiah. In the book of Nehemiah, the, a lot of the story of what happened during this period is told. And we hear the following story, which is very strange. Here we go. It's source two. Which means outside of one of the gates going into the Harabayit, they all gathered at the plaza there. Rehov is a plaza in Tanakh. They told Ezra to bring a Sefer Torah. And so he brought a Sefer Torah. And when was this? On the first day of the seventh month. That's the day we call Rosh Hashanah. Ezra brings this Sefer Torah. He reads publicly from daybreak until midday. He's reading the Torah. And everybody's listening. So he stands on a pedestal that they made, and he has on each side of him six leaders. And now, he opens up the Sefer in front of everyone. He was above them. So he showed them the Sefer. When he opened it up, they all stood up. Kind of what we would call Hagba. Ezra blessed God. And they all bowed to God. And we got the whole list of people who are explaining it to them. And now watch what happens in Pasuk Tet. It's very strange. Um, uh, who are Shasta, that's his other name. They turn around and say to them, Today is a holy day to God. Why are they saying that? Don't mourn and don't cry. What does that mean? Everybody's crying. They heard the words of the Torah and they start weeping. 
And Ezra and the have to get up and say, don't weep, today is a holy day. Strange, why are they weeping? What, what does he tell them to do? Go home and eat good foods and drink good wine. Send food to people who don't have. Sounds like for him. Today is a holy day for our God. Do not be sad. God's um, uh, rejoicing is your strength. You know, today is a day to be happy. You should be happy today. That's the proper day to worship God. But the real question is, why are they sad? Why are they crying? Why are they mourning? And the Levim have to tell them, Shash, still, stop mourning. Today is holy. Stop, stop mourning. So everybody went home and they did what they were told. They understood what he had told them. Now, what is going on? What is the fasting? Now, just as a footnote to this, to make this story even stranger, this is Rosh Hashanah. The people are hearing the Torah and they're weeping and they're mourning. And Ezra and Nehemiah tell them, stop weeping and mourning. Levim have to say, Shash, deal. Today is a day of rejoicing. Go home, have a good time, have food, share food with people who are poor, and they rejoice. God's rejoicing is your strength. Very strange. Uvayom Sheni. I'm continuing in, in Nehemiah. Nesfu They got together again, and they wanted to hear more Torah. They found written in the Torah, they discovered this law. We're supposed to live in Sukkot. Now, I want you to figure out how mind-blowing this is. Here these are. These are the, the, the pioneers. These are the returnees. These are the former folk who came back to Yishlam to build the Beit HaMikdash. They've never heard of Sukkot. They found in the Torah. So they're supposed to build Sukkot. They evidently never heard of Rosh Hashanah. And by the way, notice who's really missing from this group. Yom Kippur is not here. Now watch what happens. Um, and they send them all out to get wood in order to make Sukkot. They evidently were of the opinion, possibly, that the schach has to be from the Arba Minim. Uh, parenthetically, if you ever go visit the Samaritans on Sukkot, we were there a couple of years ago uh, in Hargrizim, their Sukkot, by the way, are all indoors in their, in their living room. And the schach is all made of uh, arba minim. Not necessarily our arba minim, but what they call arba minim. So they go and they build sukkot, everybody on their, everyone on the roof, and they put it in the courtyard of the mikdash, they put it out in the public plazas, etc. All right? So and the questions are right there. You have the questions. What's the weeping? What's the mourning for? How come they didn't know about Sukkot? Why is Yom Kippur missing? So to touch on the relatively minor issues relative to the Shear, it seems that when they left Eretz Yisrael, and you have to remember how amazingly powerful and insightful the rabbis at Yavna were 600 plus years later. Because what the rabbis in Yavna did was they re- shaped a, a, a faith which is largely built around the Beit HaMikdash to be able to operate independent of the Beit HaMikdash. 
That didn't happen here. So the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed. What happens to the Chagim? So Yom Kippur falls off the table at this point. Because if you think about it, Yom Kippur is an absolute Mikdash holiday. It's about the Kohen Gadol being Metaherat HaMikdash. Kohanim, you're all here. It's about the Kohanim being Metaherat HaMikdash, the Kohen Gadol being Metaherat HaMikdash. Without the Mikdash, Yom Kippur seems, and it falls off the table here in the meantime. Not, but they don't know about it. Sukkot, very reasonably, is a mitzvah that is connected to the land of Israel. It's all about the climes of Israel and the different species of Israel, and it's about the harvest of Israel. And so they went into Galut. They didn't have Sukkot. You take a holiday, a holiday away for two generations and only a select group of scholars know about it, when you tell people about it, they're going to be surprised. You show it to them in the Torah and say, okay, so that's new. But Rosh Hashanah, what happened there? That's what we're going to keep, keep on the boiler. So here's the third source I want to show you. And this third source is uh, as long as I'll just read some parts of it. Uh, but it is also from the beginning of the Second Temple period. All the sources we're looking are at are from the end of the 6th century, beginning of the 5th century BCE, uh, through the middle of the 5th century BCE, beginning of the Second Temple period, which we call the Persian period. This is from the 7th and 8th chapters of the book of Zechariah. And so I'm going to ask you a question. Tishabav was instituted because of the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash, correct? When the Mikdash was rebuilt, what happened at Tishabav? Did they continue to fast or not? The truth is, it's a little unclear. Watch the beginning of that question happen. God spoke to Zechariah in Yerushalayim. This is the fourth day of Kislev now, middle of the winter, beginning of the winter. In the fourth year of Dayavish, which means they are now in, they're a couple months away from dedicating the new Beit HaMikdash. So there was a delegation that came from uh, Bavel, asking, asking the Kohanim and the Nevi'im. We want to know what God says. So we don't have any Nevi'im in this year. We've got three Kohanim, so help us out. The question was, should I weep in the fifth month? Should I abstain as I've done for a number of years? Which means in Bavel, they have a custom to fast sometime during the fifth month, that's Av, to abstain maybe from wine, from meat, from pleasure, from whatever it might be during that time. And they've been doing it for quite a while. And the question is, should we continue? Makes sense. It's a good question. You're now back. The Beit HaMikdash is being rebuilt. And so we're asking, you know, by the way, they're asking about one fast, which is what we'll call Tisha B'Av, whether it was Tisha B'Av or the 10th of Av or the 7th of Av, but the fast, the fast of, we'll call it Tisha B'Av. Watch God's first answer. So this is the answer. And more I'll call Am Ha'aretz Ve'la Here's the answer you have to give to them. Because remember, they asked the Kohanim and the Nevi'im, so the Navi is going to tell the Kohen and the leaders, Am Ha'aretz is the leaders, and everybody else. You fast and mourn in the fifth month and the seventh month. They didn't ask about the seventh month. You mourn and fast during the fifth month and the seventh month. 
This is for 70 years you've been doing this. Is this my fast? Not my fast. Now listen to how much this echoes the first source we saw in Yeshayahu. That's why I mentioned Yeshayahu sounds a lot like this. If you eat and drink, you're eating and drinking. Meaning you fast, you fast, you eat, you eat. That's your business, not mine. I never asked you to do either one of those. You know what you really need to listen to? You need to listen to the words of the Nevi'im that were there when Yerushalayim was comfortable, was sitting secure. That's what you have to listen to. And then he goes on and says, You have to have proper judgment. Treat each other kindly. Don't abuse the poor. Don't conspire against each other. That's what I told them back then. And they refused to listen. They put a stubborn shoulder against that. They made their ears too heavy to listen. They refused to listen. That was the message of the earlier Nevim. Who are the earlier Nevim? Yirmiyahu. Yirmiyahu comes and tells them. You want an example? Look in your meow, Lamedalit. Your meow comes and tells them, This is what you've got to do. You've got to cease the way that you treat each other. You've got to cease the corrupt courts. You've got to fix all that. And then the Mikdash won't be destroyed. Your slime won't be destroyed. What happened? They were stubborn. And what happens, you see later on, they didn't listen to me. So when they cried out, I didn't listen to them. And they were destroyed. And now, Watch what God says in Pasuk Aleph, the next paragraph. I am now zealous on behalf of Zion. I have great anger on behalf of Zion. I have returned to Zion. I'm back. I dwell in Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim will be called the city of truth. And the mountain will be called the Holy Mountain. And then all these beautiful prophecies. I, I, can, I cannot, I cannot do it, sorry. This is a prophecy that Zechariah announced approximately 2,530 years ago. 35 years ago. It's a prophecy that our great-great-grandparents didn't get to see. Some of our grandparents didn't get to see. It's a prophecy that we see every day. It's, we live in unbelievable times. Old people, old men and old women will still live in the streets of Yerushalayim. Meaning you're going to see people live out long years in Yerushalayim. Every man will have a walking staff because they'll be so old. And the streets will be filled with little boys and girls playing in the streets. This is a vision. That in Zechariah's time, as you look at the next pasuk, was wondrous to imagine that Yerushalayim could have thriving life and people playing in the kids playing in the streets and people living out long years was unbelievable. And it remained unbelievable until the end of the 19th century, until the beginning of the 20th century. We live in miraculous times. And the prophecy continues that. I'm returning you. However, the theme continues throughout, which is you have to correct the way you treat each other. You have to correct 
the 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 court system. You have to weigh the correct way that you that you take care of the poor, the widow, the orphan. And now watch what he says in Pasuk Yudchet. And then God said, which is the first time we ever heard of this, a fast in the fourth, fourth month. What that is, we hold that it is the fast of Tammuz when we fast for the, the walls broken, breaking, being broken down. That's what we call Tisha B'Av. That's Tom Gedalia. The fast of the 10th of Tevet, which we call Arba Somot, the four fasts. Right, and these will be days of great rejoicing and uh, and, uh, and and happy days and festive days, and but love, truth, and peace. That's what you have to do. And the end of the prophecy is the days will come as in this picture where other nations are going to come to you and say, "Please take us through Shalim." We want to find out what it's all about. You're going to go from being a downtrodden, backwater little province of the Persian kingdom into being an international center of religious seeking and guidance because the ethical treatment that you have for each other is going to be so splendid, so marvelous, that everybody's going to understand this is where the true God is. This is where the God of Israel who teaches the Torah of Israel. And that's why they're all going to say, like the last pasuk, <clears throat> people from all nations are going to say, we want to come with you because we know that God is with you. One little note, I don't know how many of you have been in Israel for Sukkot this year, unfortunately, we can't get there. But on one of the days of Chol HaMoed, there is a festival of Umot Olam, a, fe- a, a celebration in the streets of Yerushalayim. And there are people from non-Jews from all over the world who come for Sukkot to Yerushalayim to fulfill this prophecy and the prophecy in Zechariah, we're going to read it a week from the Shabbat in the morning, the first day of Sukkot, of, of all the nations coming to celebrate Sukkot in Yerushalayim and they sand the streets with instruments and they dance and they sing to Hashem. It is like an amazing messianic vision. It's really something. But notice in this, in this vision, the people come and ask about fasting on the fifth month. God's answer is you're fasting in the fifth month and the seventh month. And then at the end, we hear about all four. Why is the fast of the seventh month? That's Som Gedalia. Why is it singled out here? Why is it singled out? So the last thing I want to look at with you today, and by the way, I'm leaving you with questions. So I will uh, send the link uh, to, uh, to the Wednesday Shear, and of course you, you can all request a copy of the podcast after it's up. Um, if you take a look here at the um, last page, as you can see, we've got all sorts of nuggets in the, in the sources. But we're going to look at just source 9 through 13 and end with that. The Mishnah in Masachet Rosh Hashanah, very appropriate. You know, the first two and a half chapters of Rosh Hashanah are not about Rosh Hashanah. They're about Rosh Chodesh. And they're chiefly about the system of testimony of the new moon and checking the witnesses and how we had to guard against the Sadducean uh, and sectarian attempt to mess up our system and uh, how we then had to send people out to announce when Rosh Chodesh was because the signal fires weren't working anymore. 
And the Mishnah here says, We send the messengers out for six months, meaning there's six different months that we need to announce to people because they know, need to know exactly what date in the month it is. But you got to remember, the fact that today is the third of Tishrei is only because we have a calendar. If we didn't have a calendar, then we would have been waiting on Shabbat to find out if the witnesses arrived and saw and had seen a new moon on Thursday night, and therefore Shabbat was the first of the month. And if not, then Sunday would be the first of the month, and that would be the one day of Rosh Hashanah. Now, we have a calendar, but before there was a calendar, they had to be able to announce to people when the month is based on the testimony. And if a date in that month was critical, they had to send agents out to, to tell them that the month is, uh, the new month has come. All right, so what are the six months? Al Nisan Pesach, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, as soon as Rosh Chodesh Nisan is announced, they have to send agents as far as they can get to tell them Rosh Chodesh Nisan was on, this year it's going to be on a Saturday night, on a Sunday. So the first Seder is on a Saturday night this year. Um, so people will know when it is. Al Av they would send out messengers to say when Rosh Chodesh Av was, so they would know when Tisha B'Av was. All right? Al Elum Ne Rosh Hashanah, they'd have to send people out in Elul to say when Rosh Hashanah is, although it doesn't exactly cover it 100%. Al Tishrim Ne when Rosh Chodesh Tishrei was, was identified, they'd send agents out to tell them when Sukkot starts. Al Kislev Ne Chanukah, and Al Adam Ne Purim. So you want to know Hanukkah is on the 25th of Kislev, you have to know when Rosh Chodesh Kislev is. By the way, Kislev, of course, is one of the months in Marcheshvan that can shift as far as being 30 or 29. So you can't rely on what you remember from the year before. And Adar, to know when Purim is. When there was a Beit HaMikdash, they'd also go out for ER to tell them when Pesach Sheni was. Okay, good. The one note that I have here is Av. As you can see, it's underlined. The Gemara asks, and the conclusion here, you're going to find wild. Why aren't they going out to announce when Rosh Chodesh Tammuz is and Rosh Chodesh Tevet is, so they'll know to fast on the 17th of Tammuz and the 10th of Tevet? You're telling them when Rosh Chodesh Av is, so they'll fast on Tishabav. They already know when Gimel Tishrei is because of Rosh Hashanah, so Tzom Gedali is covered. But what about those two? The answer is as follows. And he quotes the pasuk that we just saw in Zechariah. These fast days will become festive days. Now, simply in context, it's a prophecy that fast days will be turned into feast days. Right? And the notion is that in some messianic era, those four days will be specially celebrated as, fe as feasts. Parenthetically, it was one of the things that Shabtai Tzvi and his followers instituted, was they celebrated Tisha B'Av as, as a happy day. They said, Mashiach has already come. Right? And there's a lot of interesting literature on that. But what does he do with this pasuk? He says, You're calling it a fast day, you're calling it a feast day. Which is it? He, so he said as follows, as opposed to reading it simply, which is, right now it's a fast, but one day it'll become a feast. Instead he reads, Bizman shiyesh shalom simcha. When there is peace, these are feast days. Ein shalom som. When there is no peace, then fast. Now, unlike some of the current slogans these days, 
it isn't, peace isn't a binary thing. Chazal were much more sensitive than all the hashtags and slogans. Peace is not a binary thing. So they go on and say, meaning you could have a situation when things are not great, but you're not under threat. When there's peace, then the sason of simcha. Take a minute and look at Rashi in source 11. What's uh, shalom? Shalom is when the non-Jews are not subjugating the Jews, when the Jews are independent. So there's certainly room to argue that in the modern day state of Israel, we have to view these differently. Nobody's doing it yet, I'm just pointing it out. The Rashbah says the same thing. That Am Yisrael is living in their land. The Ritva, on the other hand, says there's two conditions. They have to be living in their land and the Beit HaMikdash has to be built. Okay, so just to point that out. But notice what, back in the Gorn, source 10. When there's peace, which means some sort of good situation for Am Yisrael, positive situation for Am Yisrael, then these are feast days. Yesh Shmad, when it's a time of persecution, Som, then they're fast days. Ain shmad ve'ain shalom, but you're in the middle, which means you don't have the idyllic situation, but you're also not being persecuted. Ratsu mitanim, ratsu ain mitanim. You ever hear a phrase like this? If they want to, they fast. They don't want to, they don't have to fast. The fast days are all up for grabs. The Gemara then goes on to add, but what about Tishabav? So why do they go out for, the answer is Tishabav, there were so many terrible things happened that we fast. And therefore they have to send the agents out. But we don't send agents out to say when Rosh Chodesh Tammuz is because Sachakol, the fast of Tammuz is a voluntary fast. That's what they say. By the way, they're saying that about all three fasts. Shiva Sarbat Tammuz, and Tzom Gedalia as being basically voluntary. What does that mean? By the way, in practice, we don't do that. In practice, we fast. But what does that mean to say it's dependent on whether they want to or not? So what we've seen over the course of this, of the Shi'ur, there's a lot of questions, but I'm gonna go over them and clarify the direction that we're going. The first question I had, we looked at this passage from Yeshayahu, which is from the beginning of the second temple period, where the people are fasting, they're not getting an answer. We don't know what they're fasting for. The Beit HaMikdash is built, what are they fasting for? Um, and the rebuke is that you got it all wrong. You're not taking care of the way you treat the poor. And if you do that, you're going to have all of this great stuff happen, including, and not limited to, but including sovereignty and control. Where'd that come up? We then saw this very strange passage in Nehemiah where Ezra read from the Sefer Torah on Rosh Hashanah and everybody was weeping. And Ezra and Nehemiah had to cajole them to go home and celebrate and stop mourning. The Levim had to stop their mourning because their natural reaction was to mourn. What are they mourning about? Why are they mourning? Now we noticed that they didn't know about Yom Kippur, they didn't know about Sukkot, at least it seems they didn't know about Yom Kippur, they didn't know about Sukkot, and that seemed to be fine, but this Rosh Hashanah thing is very strange. We looked at the long passage from Zechariah where the people had come and said, now that the Beit HaMakdash is rebuilt, do we still fast on Tisha B'av? Pretty much that's the question. And his answer was, you're fasting on Tisha B'av and Som Gedalia, that's your problem, not mine. That's your business, not mine. And then he goes through a long piece about how you have to treat each other. He said, if you want to, uh, to, uh, to rejoice, to, to stop fasting on these days, the trick isn't to ask, is the Beit HaMakdash built? 
The trick is to ask, have you fixed the things that broke it? I'm going to tell you, end up for the story. And he gives this beautiful, beautiful prophecy that ends with, that almost ends with, these feast day, fast days are going to become feast days. And ends with, they're going to reach a time when the whole world is going to say to Jews, please take us to your city and teach us, bring us to your God, because we heard that the, the God is with you. Jerusalem is going to become an international center of religious seeking. Amazing image. We then saw the Gemara that <clears throat> determined that the status of Tzom Gedalia and Shivasavatamuz and Asarvatevet in times that are not times of absolute persecution is really a voluntary. It's a very strange halachic category, Ratsu, Lo Ratsu. So we have to see what that's about. We're going to take a look at on Wednesday, is we're going to take a look at the story of Gedalia himself. Because in the middle of all of this is Gedalia. Gedalia plays a way more critical role than, than at least I grew up thinking when we heard all of those jokes about who's Gedalia and would he fast for you. And, uh, but we have to get a better sense of what was happening then and why his assassination was so crushing and the role that it plays in all of this. I just want to end with a story which is really cuts to the, the piece both in Zechariah and in Yishayahu. Um, I think I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. You all know that uh, in normal summers, I attend the Yemei Yun in Alon Shvut, where we have approximately uh, 10,000 people coming to study Tanakh over the course of five days. Um, and uh, I get to listen to, to my teachers and my colleagues teach, and I usually give a lecture. This year, we all did it by Zoom. Um, and one of the highlights really is not in the lectures themselves, but is lunch. Now, lunch is not necessarily IAI, but once you get in line for lunch, and the line can be very long, you suddenly eat, meet old friends, you meet teachers, and then you sit with them for lunch, and you can have the most amazing conversations with the most brilliant Tanakh minds in the world over lunch. And a few years ago, I was sitting with, um, with my friend, uh, Rabbi Menachem Liebtag, and a teacher of ours, Rabbi Yol Binun, and several other teachers are sitting at lunch. And as you all know, I'm not shy. So I turned to them and I, uh, and I asked in Hebrew, I said, um, tell me something, Rav Yol, why are you fasting on Tisha B'av? Do you fast on Tisha B'av? He said, yes. I said, why do you fast on Tisha B'av? I want to see what you have to say. I fast on Tisha B'av. I want to know why he fasts on Tisha B'av. I mean, is, is, God, is there anything God hasn't given us? God has given us a land. God has given us a country. God has given us uh, the ability to create a thriving economy and a first-rate military and you name it. And now, Bar Hashem, peace treaties with our, with our neighbor. Unbelievable. So what are you fasting for? So he, he told me a, an amazing thing. He said he was on a, an interview program on TV, Israeli TV, and he was asked the same question, and he, and he quoted Zechariah Chet, the passage we saw. And he said, the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed because of the way that we treat each other, especially the way we treat the disenfranchised, the poor, the lonely. He said, as long as we live in a state in which there's an underclass, and long, as long as we live, live in a state in which there are people who are victims of abuse and they're not taken care of, whatever it may be, then we have to keep fasting on Tisha We're not fasting on Tisha for what we lost. We're fasting on Tisha for the fact that we haven't fixed it. That's exactly what Zacharias says. And that was the TV show. He then told me that half a year later, he was walking down the street somewhere, and some, 
se clearly secular woman came up to him and said, Ata, Zeb Binun, you're, are you Rabbi Binun? He said, yes. She goes, I'm a completely secular woman. I don't keep Shabbat. I watched your TV show last summer. And I want you to know that ever since then, like last summer, and I committed for the future, I fast on Tisha B'Av. Because you're right. So the message that Zechariah, that Yeshayahu Nunchet, are giving us is a message of saying the fasts have to impact on how we treat each other. Because you're fasting because something terrible happened. Fixing it doesn't mean rebuilding the building. It means finding out why it was broken and fixing that. And that's what Zechariah says. That's why Chazal say, Agrata de Tanita Sidkata. The real Sakhar you get for a fast is the tzedakah you give that night. And Rashi says, the tzedakah you give when the money you saved on lunch, you give that in tzedakah. That's the real reward of a tanit, is the tzedakah. All right, so what we're going to do on Wednesday is we're then going to circle back. Uh, and again, if you can't make it, fine. But uh, actually, uh, I'll, it'll be recorded. You'll be able to hear it. We're going to circle back, and we're going to see Gedalia's role in all of this, the role of the assassination of Gedalia in all of this, and hopefully be able to answer all of the questions.